Welcome to the Bottle of Brown Podcast, Episode 8, with Bo Firethorn and Mr. Jones. Mr. Jones, you'll recognize from Episode 3, but joining us all the way from Germany is Bo, an old university buddy of mine. He's a graphic designer and fellow booze hound. Together we share a passion for proper Thai food, philosophy, and world travel. In this episode, we talk about Bo's life as an expat, the great work-from-home experiment being accelerated by this pandemic, creative downtime, and the evolution of finding good brown during the crisis. So without further ado, it's time for a wee dram and some right old blather. Thanks for listening. Time is it where you are? It is eleven o'clock p.m. on Sunday. Coming up on eleven, and you Which got the boy in bed. Time for uh, for a drink. Absolutely, absolutely. I'm gonna go procure my uh, procure my action as soon as we can get our other friend on. Ah, here we are. Hey, all right, boys, we connected. How's everybody doing tonight? <clears throat> I just came off of a three-hour-long game of Werewolf over Zoom, of course. What is what is Werewolf? You never played that as a party game, usually 10 people or more. Uh, and it's, it's supposed to be played in, in a big room in a circle. And uh, it's divided into day and night. There's, there's usually four or two to four werewolves. Everybody goes to sleep. And during the night, the werewolves decide on somebody to kill. And then the next day, everybody tries to suss out who the werewolves are. They vote on it. Uh, they vote to kill somebody. And hopefully, the, peop- the person they kill is the werewolf. And if it gets down to it and the werewolves kill everybody, they win. If the villagers uh, kill all the werewolves, they win. So, and we had 19 people, I think. It was, uh, it was quite a lot. Sounds pretty involved. Yeah. It was interesting to see it done over Zoom. I've only done it in person. But. So is that with one person sharing the screen or did you log into some kind of server? No, I mean, everybody, it was like this. It was a, it was a Zoom meeting just 19 people. And then we had a discord uh, chat running where the werewolves, you know, cause they have to come up with somebody to kill every night. So the werewolves had sort of a private chat area uh, and each individual role had their own sort of private area, but it took a while. Sounds like it. It sounds fascinating. Started at seven and it's 11 now. And I just got done. <laughs> I almost texted you that I was going to be late. And then the game ended suddenly. It's been a it's been an interesting run. I've been paid in two months. Uh, that could be a little rough on the pocketbook. It's mostly COVID related, although in an indirect fashion. Yeah. So are you are you getting any money? No. No. Okay. <laughs> okay. Right. So l- a little. Did background. you trade in? Yeah. A little background. I work for a, a design well d- a design engineering agency, digital agency. We do websites and stuff, uh, software two sort of 800 pound gorilla clients right now, which made us think we'll be good through this crisis because one's an international bank and the other one's a, a university. And it's like, should be all right. But uh, both of them have had issues in their accounts payable department, it seems, where they uh, have a lot of people working from home who haven't before and who have been running around like chickens with their head cut off, evidently. At any rate, not cutting checks to the poor contractors. Yeah, it had been a minute since I got paid. reason I was asking is because our mutual friend, we recorded an episode with him Friday night, and he may be technically a permanent resident of Singapore, but he's getting a check. Oh, that kind of check. That kind of check yeah. I got. And I got it on the, I was the first person I knew to get one. Uh, I got it on the 15th, and it was a big one. We're on the, it must have been the AGI because we're a little above, I think, in gross, but we snuck in there. So we got a check for me and a check for my wife and a smaller one for the boy. Not that we would normally have needed it, but it was quite good when I'm not going to pay. Right. So you've been bouncing around the world for a long time now, but you're still you're still citizenship based here. So you still have passports for here. You didn't give those up? No. I, uh, so my wife and I both were born um, dual citizens. Uh, she for... Uh, Thailand and, and me for uh, 
Germany. So it was the Germany. Okay. Yeah. So we we both have dual citizenship, and then we've been out of the U.S. since uh, 2010, fall of 2010. We were in Thailand for close to seven years, and then we've been in in Berlin since 2017. Wow. Yeah. So I'm used to this whole working from home thing. I'm used to the telecommuting. It's nothing new. So uh, normally we start out with what's our brown, and I got to go get my brown because I was wasting time cranking this one up. But what are you rocking over there? Uh, I have a, uh, a Japanese here. I got a Nika from the barrel, which is a, a wonderful blend. It's got a ton of different stuff in it from what I hear. They're they're a huge distillery, and they, they put in a whole bunch of different stuff. But it's, it's real good. It's got a nice depth of, of flavor, good smoothness to it. We like it. If I'm not drinking a super, super peaty scotch, that's mm. this is what I'll reach for. What about you, Norcal? You rocking at two o'clock on a Sunday? <laughs> not yet. I'm actually still working. Um, so I hadn't started yet in my bottle of brown intake. It, it will. I can go pick up a glass real quick. And I definitely picked up a few newbies. Uh, kind of ran out of some Irish whiskey, so I picked up one of that. Got a nice peaty one that I've been looking for. Um, if anybody's listening into those uh, those documentaries that they do on Netflix lately with uh, all the free time that we have on our hands, I picked up uh, one of the ones, Bruchinlati. It's the it was just kind of who they Brick, Bricklati, yeah, Bricklati. That's it, and the little Lottie or whatever. And so kind of their lower end, but just kind of entry level. Had a sip last night. Delicious. Um, so definitely got that and uh, Woodford Reserve ride so that's a fun one to kind of add so the collection is growing during this whole shelter in place because you can't spend the money at the bar I might as well just prove my liquor collection because that's what exactly is happening lately can't go to the wineries to improve the uh, the wine cellar anymore but uh i think that'll open up here in the coming weeks or something so we can start putting some bottles in i've been doing that with beer because we have a we have a little uh, craft beer bar around the corner here um, but it's not like sort of craft the american led you know the ipas and all the funnily named beers. It's a craft beer bar solely for tiny traditional German breweries. So stuff you wouldn't find anywhere else um, that maybe has been around since, you know, 1700, but that doesn't get distributed very often outside of the local area. And I've found some really good stuff through there. They normally are just a, a bar where you go in and, and order on draft, but they've tr uh, transitioned during this because they can't do that. So they've, they've turned into a bottle shop and they're doing uh, $40 crates or 40 euro crates that you can mix and match and do whatever you like for, for 40 bucks for a 24 uh, half liter bottle. So I've been trying all kinds of new stuff. When you say it's the traditional, is that that whole like German law brewing beer only water, hops, barley, nothing else added or whatever it is? I can't remember what the law is. I know they have it though. It's kind of ridiculous. And It's the Reinheitsgebot. Uh, from 1516 and it uh, originally I guess the, the Rhein, from what I've heard the Reinheitsgebot didn't even include uh, hops at the get-go uh, so they've they've butts put a little bit over the years but yeah most of these are are Helles like the Munich style lager or a Pils uh, but they also do I mean there are some of these breweries doing IPAs and stuff like that they're just a very German take on that and not all of their beers are brewed according to their Reinheitsgebot but I don't think any of them would dream of making a Helles that wasn't uh, stamped with the Reinheitsgebot uh, thing so interesting yeah the one I'm drinking right now is a Schönrahmer which I looked up I had never had it's pretty small I looked it up online turns out the head brewer comes out of Wisconsin kind of nuts and he's uh uh, when he took over there in the 90s, uh, they immediately, the, the people in the surrounding village started complaining that, oh, the, the beer is going downhill now. There's an American brewing. Um, but the joke was he didn't touch any of the beers for the first year. He, he didn't futz with their recipes at all. So uh, <laughs> it was uh, kind of a test. But he has slowly uh, pushed things uh, in a new direction. But he's been in Bavaria for 32 years, so he's pretty, uh, or something like that. So they well, allowed get, him to be an honorary Bavarian. Well, you get to indulge in the the glorious world of Bavaria and the beers that come out of it. I mean, still to this day, there is nothing better than a, a Bavarian liter or half liter in your hand at I don't know eight o'clock in the morning, you know, on a random Tuesday. <laughs> There's no the sausage. Sometimes you gotta have it for breakfast. If you're having Weisswurst, if you're having white sausage yes. uh, for breakfast, uh, there has to be a 
uh, Hefeweizen with mm -hmm. it, or else it is not being consumed correctly, and angry Bavarians will chase you with shovels. I still remember that when uh, when we were traveling through there or whatever, but I was kind of bouncing on a train real quick, and I stopped into Munich, and remember I was like 8 o'clock in the morning, and I ran out real quick just to go over to Augustiner. And it was shocking to see how many people were sitting at tables in the middle of the day in summer. Mm -hmm. Gorgeous. 8 a.m., drinking liters on their way to work in the morning, having their breakfast before they go. I just still to this day love that picture in my mind. It's awesome. Yeah. It's the essence of the German culture, though, isn't it? The Czechs have the, uh, have the crown for the most beer drunk per capita. Uh, the, I think it's something like 100, 140 liters per person. The Germans, on average, are only about 100, so it's, you know, it's significantly less. But what isn't included in that statistic is that the Bavarians push it way up, so they're actually close to, if not more, than the Czech uh, folk. All right, so my brown is called Stronachi, or Stronach. It's God a 10-year-old. It's 43%, and it's from uh, Flaviar, my little whiskey club. I wanted a little, I wanted a little tiny taste. I don't want to do too much because it is the afternoon here, but this one is a uh, 43% 86 proof. What I, uh, what I wanted to start off with is, this is coupled back on the, the episode that we recorded, which I believe is episode three, but I want to jump on this because I found it a little fascinating. I also found a topical based on our last conversation. So on Bloomberg.com, and I posted this on the Bottle of Brown Instagram page on April 27th. The headline of the article says, how to start a whiskey collection. Prices aren't going down, so there's no time like the present to invest in something you love. They say the word invest. Yeah. The basic gist of the, of the article is bars and restaurants are going out because they can't figure out online. They can't figure out take-up delivery. And so what's going to happen now is, we talked about this on our last episode three, I believe, they're actually selling their inventory. So if there's a really, really nice bottle up on the top shelf, and this restaurant or this bar is going under, time to pick it up. Article quotes, if you like whiskey, this is a good time for drinkers and investors with more diverse bottles available than ever before. And I don't mean the nine Game of Thrones bottlings, a new generation of collectors has embraced a boom in online whiskey auctions, too, which offer thirsty aficionados around-the-clock bidding from where most of us are right now. Home. Uh, prices have gone on and up. Uh, tariffs, blah, 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 blah. But then it also speaks to the possibility of picking up a really, really good, rare bottle from unlikely places. Thoughts on this? Is now the time to invest in a whiskey collection? I call bullshit on the entire concept. Uh, I'm not a collector. I, I dearly love whiskey. I dearly love all kinds to some extent or other, but I've, uh, I don't know. I feel like people get way too serious about this stuff. And if you ever buy something without the intention of drinking it in the next five years, like just do something else, man. Like whiskey's for drinking. It's for enjoying. It's for inviting friends over. I'll go. I'll splurge and buy a hundred dollar bottle and blow it all with friends on a, on a on an afternoon or weekend. But I feel like people push it past where uh, where it makes sense anymore. I mean, there's a level playing field where you're either are you hoarding it or are you collecting it. Like, I mean, I have a obviously I have an extensive wine collection as well as then the kind of the booze has been growing in the sense of some stuff that's out there. So I do seek out some of the rarer stuff that is available, in the sense of uh, stuff that comes out of. Uh, the Sazerac distillery and whatnot that I've been able to find. No, I don't take those down in 10 minutes. I mean, I have them just kind of on a shelf, just waiting for them. As to the, the point here is that there are uh, some of the local ones here uh, in the Bay Area, they are selling a lot of their top shelf stuff. So you can get a bottle of Pappy's Van Weekles for $450. Is $450 reasonable for a bottle of Pappy's? I don't know. To your point, yeah, I think it's totally time to consume as much as you can with friends around. What sucks is we can't have our friends around to consume. So it's, uh, it sucks. All good points. All good points. What I think is, um, I, I, I like both points. I don't disagree with either of them. It is a very nice example of supply and demand because something like what you see on screen now, which is the Yamazaki, like they choke supply on this so that they can squeeze out four or five grand per bottle. And the idea of getting one of these Jesus. is, it's all bragging rights. Like anybody who drinks one of these bottles, unless it's a super... I got the one on the right, but it's, uh, special it's not occasion. a super fancy one. 
It's only a, it's like a $120 bow. No, and, and I don't know that there's some mountaintop where you get barley or some Speaking with. special magic tree that they make the barrels out of. Like, I don't, I don't really understand how you would value this as something other than, yeah, it strikes me as similar to the wine industry. It's, you know, a grape is a grape is a grape. Now, there are going to mm-hmm. be variations in it, but the DNA of the grape is the same. The genetics of the grain is the same. So they're the intentional scarcity. I mean, from what I hear, Hibiki did that, uh, or they, the, the uh, Yamazaki did that with Hibiki, uh, where they intentionally strangled um, availability. Uh, like it used to be cheaper. It used to be some uh, some things I read said it used to be better, and they sort of simultaneously made it less available and less good, and charged more for it. <laughs> well, Jake, you're you're about to get into yes, there is a difference, and I agree there is a difference. What I'm curious about is there's a $6 bottle of wine and there's a $3,000 bottle of wine. Now you're telling me that the crafting and the ingredients are going to be 1,000% better? So the the delta in value. It's a prestige. I mean, yeah. I mean, look, at the end of the day, your sourcing of ingredients can dictate cost because of prestige. You know, um, simply put, if you buy something from uh, Napa County, if it says Napa County, it's immediately worth more money than if it was from Sonoma, Monterey, Santa Barbara, San Ynez, blah, blah, blah. Um, obviously, those are the kind of the genetics that come that come around for its procurement. And then from there, yes, there are some extra added costs and come from a strong winemaker, a strong winery, uh, prestige for how old it is, um, other reasons like that. Now, if you put a bottle of wine that's a $100 bottle of Napa Cab next to a Screaming Eagle at $1,200 a bottle, and I had you do a blind taste test, there's a really good chance you're going to like that $100 bottle of Cab just as much. But when I told you that the one that was Screaming Eagle was the other one, you'd probably freak out. It's a lot of fun to do when you take really high-end wines and you put them next to each other. People's palates are all different. So you're going to associate no matter what about What's the characteristics of this one that you like more and versus that one? Lots of times we're not drinking thousand dollar bottle of wine, so we're not gonna know what they taste like. Like when you're, it's, it was spectacular to me also, is with whiskey, which also dictates cost, is how old it is, same thing in wine. In whiskey, you basically have how old it is, means how much more concentrated it is, but it's also how much loss was involved. So when you're drinking stuff from the six, from 1960s, 50s, 40s, yeah, those bottles are, more expensive because they're old they've also lost a lot and they've also been stored and the cost is higher so there is like kind of like a makeup that's needed but paying like three grand for a bottle of scotch just that makes me curious you're talking about the costs of the wine as a business so if it costs more to store it and it's longer and there's still supply and demand again if you talk about the chemistry of the Mm -hmm. liquid is it that dramatic of an experience that you can justify the exponential increase in markup Ooh. in wine yes um, probably in with whiskey maybe not as much i will give you an example if you're drinking bottles of yeah. wine from the 80s and 70s right now so for my 40th birthday i treated myself i bought a bottle of wine that was from a prestigious winemaker that was in the napa area uh, bottle was a 1979 cab i bought it for nostalgic reasons because it was you know a 40 year old great and it could have been literally harvest right around my birthday. And saying that, I wanted to know what it was like and what it tasted like. What you will find is that the characteristics coming out of things that are that old are mind-blowing. They are absolutely crazy on depending on what the weather was like, what what came in, you know, and all the contrasts of soil content, air, cool, drought, stress, harvest, um, everything goes into it so i'm just saying this in the sense of wine not as much as whiskey but i will say that if you have if you wrap your lips around something that's like in the, i had a 1988 cab also and i was shocked at that it didn't it tasted totally different in the sense it had a sense of pepper and different other flavor profiles of plum and cherries that come through and it's just that's that's the difference and that's why wine is kind of its offshoot crazy Thing that you can drink and yeah you're gonna spend you know a thousand dollars for something for one night or whatever it is just to, so you can have a glass of something. that's a very interesting take is it because grape is 
is because grape is a fruit. I mean, we're talking about a, a fruit-based spirit and supposed to a grain-based spirit. I mean, I don't yep. think that you have barley or rye soaking up the world around it as much as grapes do. I know that you were telling me this, that with the big Sonoma fires, those grapes are going to inherently have more smokiness because of the fire and the ash. Is that, did I remember that right? Kind of close. Simply put, when smoke gets near grapes that are in that stage of their life, they uh, take on an oil that goes onto the grape skin. And that oil, when crushed, fermented over time, has a characteristic taste to it that doesn't taste good. So your only other options are dump it or mask it. And so masking is done by taking wine, putting it in another kind of barrels. And these barrels are been known to be bourbon barrels. So it brings us full circle. And the bourbon barrel will mask the overall taste of the, of the grape. And so it can still be consumed. Is it different? Yeah. Is it hot? Oh yeah. It's it's just different. It's just it's another characteristics. It's another market that's out there. Some people really like it, and some people don't. I love what you said about it being a snapshot in time. Now that to me puts an extraordinary amount of value on the year and the location. Because if you're aware of what happened environmentally at the Very time, true. then yes, you do have you do have a photograph in a bottle. So that's an interesting point. That's I didn't think about that. In terms of brown, it really has to do with preparation. And I suppose to some degree, you could suggest that the type of wood they make the barrel out of might give you that experience. Although I'm not aware of that level of specificity with brown spirits as opposed to to wine so that's that's neat i like that well a lot of times depending on the brown it's uh, it's legally or at least um, the rules prescribe exactly what type of wood you're going to use right i mean bourbon has to be aged in a certain type of cask i'm sure uh, there's all kinds of rules depending on what which region. Uh, yes, bourbon has a very specific about. set of rules. I know that American whiskey is very different from Irish whiskey. This is very different from Scotch whiskey, which we sample all those here. There, there is a question of acidity level. There is a question of what your what your ingredient set is, how much you fire the barrels, how long it sits. So yeah, there there are some data points that will allow it to be a variety. But I I think by and it can be. Sorry, it can be your core brand identity, like the Macallan, from what I remember. I mean, their whole thing is that it's uh, used sherry casks, I believe. So they have a, a strong, or brandy, so anyway, some, some grape-based uh, spirit. So they, they have almost a cognac-y feel to a nice Macallan. That's how most, most scotches are. Yeah, I mean, they're all old wine barrels. They're the leftover. So wine is brand new, you know, American oak. <laughs> Uh, European oak, French oak. And so the barrels are used, typically a wine barrel is used three times. If you can get it out of it, you'll use it once, then you'll shave it down, and then you can use it again twice. Maybe you can get three times out of it. That all depends on your winemaking to the beginning conversation of your quality of wine. If you're going to have a really high-end grape going into it, you're going to have a brand new barrel. You're not going to have a used one. So they get basically passed down for the life of the barrel. So the barrel can actually stink because they're expensive. Looking at five fifty a piece. In order to make so them. what happens in, in the wine industry is basically Hard work. Yeah. You turn around, you flip them yeah, you flip them basically back over to um to the Europeans or whatnot is to make scotch in this case. Um as well as I can't remember what it is for bourbons, but um that's the case there. So it's like they don't have to use brand new. They char it basically down. So these are all very good arguments for the concept of for three hundred dollars, there are a large variety of choices. I would still come back to, to our man in Germany's opinion is it's for drinking. Like if you're, if you're buying an asset in a bottle and you're not intending to consume it, maybe you are an asshole. Let me, let me rephrase. I mean, my, or clarify, cause my opinion is not that uh, artisanal things shouldn't be made. I mean, I'm an artist. Uh, I believe very strongly that if somebody sinks their soul and passion into something, uh, they deserve, recompense for that uh and the prices for some of these things is, i mean wine is a perfect example i mean the 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 passion that that winemakers sink into some of their higher end stuff i mean they deserve every penny that they charge for that uh, but my my problem isn't with the existence of high-end things um it's more with this like people kind of treating it i mean the word invest i mean Unless you're just investing in the good times, man, like, you know, uh, 
people treat it like a collection like something to hold on to and barter with and impress and the status and all that it's just it's not my bag it's as investments go the idea is you hold on to it and the longer you hold on to it it has some maturation effect where it gets more important over time and uh, when you start talking it only about, happens if you don't drink it yeah so that's <laughs> the thing is you're talking about things that are designed to be consumed you're not going to eat a painting so my my issue with with uh, where I think you're going, which which I agree with, is if it's something that is to be consumed and its purpose is to be consumed, the idea of holding onto it as an investment, it's like a car you don't drive, you know, a bottle that you don't drink. It's it's a waste. I don't like. At some point, you get into what I think is wrong with with most of the markets is you're not getting into what it actually is. Like you're not investing in a company because you believe in what they do or the product or service that they sell, you're investing in a company because it will eventually grow in value, which is fiat. What is value? Value is a snapshot in time. So the idea of investing in whiskey, I like the idea of picking up good whiskey on the cheap. That to me is a bargain. <laughs> but the concept of Amen. I'm gonna buy this bottle because eventually I'm gonna sell it to somebody. It's like, why? Why would you, why would you do that? There is somebody out there who enjoys whiskey, who is going to get a more fulfilling life experience. Like, I'll, I'll, I'll put mean, this to you, Norcal. Yeah, to each his own, I, which, which I am fully in agreement with. So that's, that, that makes the argument difficult. But let me ask you this, Mr. J. Of the 500 million bottles you have in your house, are you planning to sell any of them? Oh, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm not in the futures, man. Case, that's, that's, case in point, they will go down your throat at some point. I will point. say this: is I, with the booze side, there's not a problem in shelf life, and the wine side there is. So it's like I have to be in a sense of consumption in the next like five to ten years. I have to turn over the whole inventory because I don't have anything that will sit that long, you know. Because because there's a peaking point in the world of wine, in most wine. If you get into old, you know, old uh, old world stuff, it can be a little different. But um, for the most part, stuff made in here. In, the California or U.S. side of stuff isn't isn't necessarily that old world. I mean, to your point, like I remember stories of people that would pick up. You know, when you buy wine in Europe, it's all done on the futures. So it's like you go out to the market and you you buy this year's crop before it's even started. You know, and you buy the futures for Chateau Marmont or uh, you know all those kind of really high end South of France kind of wines. But some people have picked those up, and what's crazy about it is, yes, those gain value. And this is kind of really, I think, where this kind of really starts from and originates from, is that people that buy those futures, and then they hold on to them for a little bit, and then they resell them. And there's a huge market for that. And I think that's what's really playing into this is they're like, well, if we can do it in wine, why can't we do it in bourbon? Why can't we do it in scotch? Like, we should totally be able to do those. That's kind of, I think, what the building point is of this is like, well, where can I turn a buck in this market? I like the idea of... So this is the capitalist in me. This person who runs this bar that has all of these nice bottles made an investment probably in branding or in the concept of bringing in a higher clientele with the concept of either being known for a certain level of quality in their services or to perhaps make more profit off of their existing clientele. And guess what? The market shifted. Nobody plans for a pandemic. This is a crisis. One word for it. And if you're not prepared for a crisis, sorry, man, those bottles are assets that somebody else values. Get rid of them. But you're probably not going to be able to get rid of them for the price you bought them, which is a good opportunity for somebody else who does have money, who is willing to spend. To me, it's the invisible hand of the market. Now, I don't want that person to be out of a job and I don't want that person to suffer, but I have no qualms taking a very nice bottle of Macallan off of them at a heavy discount i haven't really seen them on the discount side i've been seeing it more on the markup side basically to the point of looking for rarities in the market that you can get you can obtain in a short period of time versus having to seek them out over a longer period of time to the point that i started with you know finding a bottle of happies for 450 bucks it's a lot easier than me trying to find one for a thousand yep. i got a bottle of uh wl weller that i picked up at bevmo here for 18 dollars 50 on discount they're going to sell it for 250 that's how this works you know, and they're trying to basically make a dollar too. I mean, they're trying to find different ways to bring in revenue. So there's nothing wrong with that. Okay, let's transition on to this virus. Now, I know how you feel, Jay, because we talked about it and we spent an extensive amount of time on it. This kind of dovetails into your work from home concept. Our third guest on this particular episode has very distinct feelings on the work from home concept and the idea of video conferencing and Zoom. And it's been at least a decade you've been doing this? Yeah, uh, I... 
originally, I started working in tech 2006 and I worked for a, another kind of digital agency for a while and got laid off during the, the fall of 08, which was of course the financial troubles last time around. Like a lot of people did, yeah. And I started casting about and ended up meeting some interesting people. And we took what was essentially three guys and now it's it's like 15 guys. and. Uh, I ended up part very minority owner, so I have a, a stake in the company and everything. But it's cool. it's basically a bunch of bunch of very like-minded guys and women who work on some pretty high-end stuff. But we do it in a in a way that's kind of a I would say atypical for the tech industry. We're a lot more relaxed. We don't believe in seventy-hour work weeks. We don't really believe in forty-hour work weeks. Uh, we try to lead with the idea of a quality life. And uh, the work is not our life. The work allows us to live. Well, the work, but the work gets done. The work gets done. We take pride in our work. We are no slouches. Uh, I feel like we do better work than a lot of people who are competing in the space. But I also feel like we have made a conscious decision maybe to not do the absolute best work that we could do, which is a, a controversial thing to say. But I feel like if we were all in one office, we might physically kill each other, but we might also do better work for a while before we did that, just because we could bounce ideas off each other and we would end up working longer. We would stay late hours, but we, nobody who works for our company believes in that. Um, we believe in using work as a means to achieve um, our ability to live the lives we want, which of which work is only one part. Yeah. So, that's the work-life balance. Yeah. And we're, we're big on that. Um, you know, and the, the, the weird thing is we've managed to find a bunch of people who are really good at that, who are also not looking for shortcuts. The, the, nobody at our company is trying to milk that for all it's worth where we go in and we do really good work and then we cut out it too and go do something else, you know, and that's, <laughs> turns out not a, not a standard thing in the tech industry. Well, I, I like that you've been doing it for a while. So you're a perfect use case that it's not a crisis that gets you to the point of where you do the work that needs to be done and then you go off and have a life. And I applaud you for that. I think that's awesome. What I wonder is if people really understand that now, because I've said this before and I'm a big proponent of it. If your method as a manager of managing people is to know that they're in the seat at eight and the clock out at five, then you're an <laughs> asshole because you're not actually measuring yep. performance. You're just putting chains on somebody. And what I've found, which, which is pretty typical of most people, uh, at least anecdotally, I don't have any data to back this up, but remote workers in general seem to have discovered that it's not eight hours that you get your work done in. Now, if you're a guy like Tim Ferriss and you figured out the four hour work week, it means now you have 10 jobs because he wants to work 40 hours a week. But the concept of your, yeah. your work can be done in less time if it's concentrated and if it's what it's supposed to be, and it's not supposed to be punching a clock. Part of what we've been talking about these last few episodes is what happens now when it's not a 40 hour work week because you had to clock in at eight and you had to leave at five, you take mm -hmm. your two tens and your hour lunch. What does it mean now to measure performance and what, um, what Leon Coventry from episode two said is, no, I have to talk to people. I have to get in the office. I have to have that physical interaction. I need to look at somebody. I need to look them in the eyes. I need that visceral one-to-one -one human experience. He says, you get it over a camera, but you don't. And then what Jay was talking about during our episode is he says, I don't ever want to see these people again. They don't shave. They smell. He's like, fuck it, dude. Let the video conference be the way we do things if the work is digital, such as you know, spreadsheets and so forth. So I'm interested in your take, having done this without a pandemic or without an economic crisis or any of that, what's your take mm -hmm. on from now on you think things are going to be? Well, I'll tell you, uh, the thing that I, I mean, obviously both perspectives are right, like, uh, and it depends entirely on what job is being done. Um, our company is 100% remote. There is no office. There, everybody lives in different places. We have people as far flung as, uh, uh, you know, from the Bay Area to uh, Oaxaca, Mexico, to uh, Pakistan, to Florida, um, and nobody needs to see each other uh, to do their jobs. Except, uh, and this is very important, one person who uh, drums up new business. You know, who goes out and talks to 
clients and who makes personal relationships where um, when that person we have a personal relationship with, uh, with moves to a different company, maybe they bring us over as well. And we, you know, and that stuff, yeah, you can't do that over Zoom. I mean, you can't maintain a relationship of that sort, a business relationship uh, where it's not based. I mean, the, the thing about our company and our coworkers, most of us have been there a long time. We're very good friends uh, as far as coworkers go. Um, we do, we try to do meetups every couple of years where we'll do something, we'll go raft a river or we'll, you know, do a camp. So you do have an in-person team building experiences. We try to, it, it's sometimes pretty spotty. I mean, the last one we did was probably 2017 or uh, 2018. And then before that it was 2015. So it's like, we try to do it every other year. Sometimes it ends up being three years though. We, we were originally planning on doing something this year, probably better that we all slacked off on that. Um, but that's the thing, our company could run without those in-person meetings, uh, and it does often, except for that one very specific case where you need to maintain personal relationships to keep business coming in. It depends on the job. Yeah. My job, I don't need to see anybody. I don't need to talk to people. I've run, you know, million dollar sort of software uh, buildups and stuff in record time from Thailand when the business was in the Bay and we made it work. We had to have meetings constantly with the client and that was fine. I mean, we, we made it work. Communication in that sense is fine, but it, it wasn't relationship building. And so maybe that, maybe that's where the distinction is, is between getting a task done that you've already decided on versus building a relationship yeah. over time. Is the factory worker who needs to go to a factory because they need to build in a factory because they need to achieve at scale. So you can't put a 3D printer in every house because then that whatever it is that you produce needs to be shipped. So either you got a truck going to a house or you got 500 people going to one factory where all the 3D printers are and you bring one truck. Those are the ways that you can divide that part up. When it's a human interaction, uh, I talked about this on an earlier episode, but the Japanese will fly 7,000 miles to look you in the eye and shake your hand because there is just something about technology that is still impersonal. And like this was true in the eighties. Now you might have to be worried about deep fakes and, and all sorts of other malarkey, but it's a good point. I, I wanted your take on it because I do know that you've been remote for that time. And I do know that you've been successful there. There still seems to be a human element. There probably will always be human element positions. Uh, but the general consensus that I'm seeing is more and more of those jobs are either going to robots slash AI or they're simply digital and can be done from anywhere. Well, that I think there's been a huge mm, sort of resistance to this idea in a lot of different jobs. And it's all artificial. It's built up. It's, it's inertia. It's conservatism. It's something. And you, you mentioned it with the idea that eight to five, you've got to be there in the office and that's the only way to measure progress. That's one example of it. But I mean, all of it, even the idea that like people sitting there and doing other things at their computer, browsing Facebook or whatever, that, that, that that's wasting the company's time. A lot of professions, I mean, I can only talk from my perspective, but I'm in a creative profession. I, I use, I mean, I'm on the design side. So rather than the engineering side, I, uh, which both are creative, but, um, but I end up expending these sort of creativity cycles and that's how I earn my living. And I can't do that for more than an hour and a half or two hours at a time. I would consider a two hour chunk of design time to be incredibly productive, but I can't maintain it. If I, if I keep that up, I'll, I'll burn out. And it's simple maintenance that every 30 minutes, 40 minutes, normally I will finish the, the immediate task that I'm working on or, or get to a point where I can wrap up. And I'll go dick around and do something mindless for a while. So I end up sitting in front of the computer, usually for a block of six hours a day. I like to do that. Some people in my position don't. They like to come and go. I like to sit there. My day would look a lot like an office worker kind of goofing around and, and being unproductive. But I am told often that I work much faster than people expect and that I get more done and, and in higher quality. So it doesn't necessarily mean, you know, wasting time isn't what people think it is. Um, a lot of times it's a necessary mental recharge period. Yeah. What do you think? I see you nodding. I totally agree. I mean, I only, I, I'm the flip side, obviously from our counterpart across the sea. I, uh, I work a lot. I, I work, I'm working right now. I'm actually literally listening to you and working. 
but uh, I have definitely that ADD kind of thing where it's like, I can't focus and go from one thing to another, to another, to another. I need my breaks. I need to like stop. And I say, it's kind of interesting, but like a waste of time is not reading the paper or looking at news articles or popping into Facebook or whatever it is. I find a lot of my time actually is just honestly reading articles a lot of times. And it's just like the littlest thing I find I pull later for when I have discussions about companies, no matter what they are, look at, if you're going to take a break, take it as a productive break, learn something, find out what's going on about some one of your interests or whatever. What's the news going on? Don't get stuck into the, the hodgepodge of American politics. That's, that's a waste of time. 100%. Else. 100%. That, that is just not a time to spend and whatnot. And as well as don't get too sucked into Facebook and what people are posting. Because 100%. Having an argument with your uncle about this and that does not change his opinion and only pisses off you. So that's dumb. <laughs> Amen, brother. I nod my head in the sense that I think it's very productive. And when people think that like you can't check this and you can't go look at that and go to Yahoo News or whatever reader that you're on or what news outlet you can get on your phone, there's nothing nothing bad about that. I think that's actually really positive. And I, I grasp it constantly. And I'm one of the rare people who still gets a newspaper. And I read my paper this morning on Sunday before I started my day. I think that is one of my favorite things to do on my Sundays and Saturdays. So good for you. I'm keeping the uh, journalist paid in the sense of actual written news and paper. I like what you were saying about being a creative. So the idea of a creative person is not like somebody that's in finance or IT. Like the person at the help desk in IT is just sitting around waiting for a problem so that they can put the fire out and they can go and do what they need to do. Somebody who's at the packing desk is just waiting for a box to show up so they can fill it with peanuts, pack it up, give it to the FedEx guy. When you're in a position of being a creative, it's your job to create, and that requires inspiration. Like nobody can create from nothing. You have to pull together life experience, you have to pull together ideas. The concept of a job that is kind of nebulous, I think, is what the United States seems to be being built on, right? The knowledge economy. And so I, I absolutely agree. In a strategic position like I am, you're responsible for coming up for new ideas in the next five, maybe 10 years. And so you got to know what's going on. You got to have data from some of the existing markets that you're in. You have to have concepts of what other companies are doing right. You got to read. And if you don't read, you're missing out. But what I never liked about the idea of chaining somebody to a desk is if their job is going to require any out-of-the-box thinking, or you're going to want them to approach the suggestion box, or you're going to want them to analyze a problem and find a creative solution, it's not going to be clock punching. And I know that that's how the majority of the states in the US judge labor is you punch in, you punch out. Uh, so I'm always a fan of the salary person. Like if they're of some value, pay them for what, what you think they do. But the idea of trading their hours for a handful of dimes, it's, it, it's always bothered me as a manager and as a person that thinks about what the value of a worker is. That was a huge shift in my career going from, I mean, there was a point at which I went from wage to salary and i feel like that was a massive release it, it was ultimate like an ultimate recognition that like this isn't based on how many hours i put into it and it was freeing and it was uh, i mean it really made it an enormous difference in my professional life was it liberating because it was for me i loved it absolutely i don't ever want to yeah. go back no matter how much money i'll make out of it i don't ever want to go back to punching the clock <laughs> I would take two thirds as much money in salary uh, versus, uh, you know, a hundred percent if I was hourly. I mean, it's, it makes a, a huge difference to me. And it's one of the reasons I never did. I, well, I, I never enjoyed doing freelancing after I got laid off from the first tech company. I did do freelancing for a couple of months before I hooked up with my current company and I made a lot more money, like a lot more money uh, than I did at either company. Uh, but I hated it. I couldn't stand it. And it was, oh, some of it was the management stuff. Some of it was the chasing clients. And but a lot of it was just that idea that I had to account for every hour that I was billing for, you know? It touches a little uh, bit on, the, on our previous discussion regarding value. Like the wife has switched over from doing an hourly bill, which I've never agreed with, to a monthly subscription model, which I think is the way the world is going. I'm a big fan of subscription services. 
what she effectively said is, here's what I'll guarantee you for this monthly stipend of us doing business together. She says, but here's also what I'll give you. I'm available at any time within these hours. I'll do whatever you want me to do within reason, given these specific parameters. But if it takes me 40 hours to do it, you pay one fee. If it takes me one hour to do it, I've been doing this for 20 years. So what you get is the value of the work. And as a result, similar to what you're saying is there's less distraction about what the value of an hour is. There's less worry about how things get invoiced because it's just a flat fee. And it puts a little bit back on the client to say, I need more of your time. But in terms of the relationship, I think it builds it. I think it keeps her less stress-free. And I think it's just a better way of doing business. Like, I, I don't care how long it takes you to do it. This is what I want to pay. Well, and there's a perverse incentive, of course, for hourly work. I mean, again, like I said before, I'm, I'm kind of, I have a reputation for being faster than a lot of designers. Um, that isn't, wouldn't be my reputation if I was billing people by the hour, you know, I mean, it just wouldn't, uh, <laughs> that, that would, I wouldn't have any incentive, uh, to do that. Like, let me have this job and I'll, I'll only bill you half as much as the next guy, you know? Uh, so being salaried frees me up. I mean, our, our company ultimately usually bills hourly as well, but we, we build in a lot of things. I mean, it's essentially it's an engagement. So we build in a lot of like this feature took this long and, you know, um, but for me personally, it, it freed me up because it doesn't like I can do it as quickly as I feel comfortable doing a good job um, because I'm not going to get less money if I if I hustle, you know, and that ultimately is excellent for clients. Yeah, I think a client knows what budget they're working with. So if you can tell them this is it, that solves the budget problem right away because they know whether or not they have money for it and they know that the job will get done. Uh, then you can get into customer service of levels of satisfaction and all that. Uh, yeah, the challenge that you're, that you're running into, which I remember when my old man was an executive and I was 20-something, fresh out of school, you know, we're no longer chain smoking and drinking beer all night and waking up to the Sublime album and listening to the ocean. I would pop in from time to time to see what he was doing and he was usually doing emails or he was reading the paper. And I thought, great, this is what a CEO does. He sits behind his desk, he reads his paper, he drinks his coffee, I'll take it. You know, and then you get into the idea of, uh, at the other end of the spectrum, what Elon was talking about is you should be paid in proportion to the problems that you solve. And in the correct sense, the chief executive is solving the biggest problems that the organizations face. There is obviously rife opportunities for abuse in that system. But the job should dictate the value and the job should dictate how you spend your day. And creatives need time to be creative. Strategists needs time for strategy. Uh, so in terms of the direction that most of the world is going, it seems like, to, to put a bookend on this part of the discussion, it seems like going online is a natural tendency, whether or not we had a pandemic. The pandemic just accelerated it. Thoughts? Sure. And I, I welcome that acceleration. I mean, I don't, uh, the pandemic is awful and I'm, I'm sorry it had to happen this way, but, uh, you know, people who do work remotely, at least the ones that I interact with, often sort of look down on a lot of these office positions because it's like, you, just, you guys just haven't figured it out yet. I mean, you don't have to do this. Some of you do, some of the, some of the positions do, but a lot of you don't. And the life that it can free up, I mean, that's another thing. That's maybe the most important thing for me is the, the life I've been able to live would have been impossible for almost anyone on earth 30 years ago. The internet has enabled what I've done. I've lived in a foreign country for the, you know, since 2010, uh, for a decade now, and yet I have been employed and been a California pa taxpayer the entire time, uh, which is strange. Uh, it allowed us in Thailand to uh, put away enough money to have our first apartment, and, you know, it's a it's a weird privileged way to live in a, in a country like that. And in Germany, it's got its own set of problems, which I'd rather not get into. <laughs> so it's a, it's a challenging way to live, but it's also something where if I hadn't had this opportunity, if I had to live in the same town just to be where my company was, I would have sort of a nagging dissatisfaction with my life on some level because that's, or I would have, 
given up a, a comfortable salary for some sort of bohemian life. I mean, one or, one or the other, but the, the fact that I can have my cake and eat it too right now is that's something that could only happen in this day and age. And I'm really thankful for it. Yep. Knock on that. Jay. I totally agree. I mean, um, the, the to uh, T's point is that when we started with this, it was like, no one really kind of had the concept of like pushing, pushing the clock or whatever it is. But I think what's been interesting is companies have now opened up and realized, Hey, we can do this. Yeah. It's going to cost a little bit of investment. You got to get laptops for employees. You got to set up your, um, your uh, cloud-based services, your IT and whatnot. But I think there's actually one other thing too, is that I think companies have looked at also the investment in technology needs to be something that has to be constant and not something that you stop doing. It's that, you know, too often that like we look for the easy way out of all of this where um if i give you a laptop and a login you should be fine and the reality is is it's not i need support i need i need the company to continually support us i don't want to have you take the short the shortcut and the shortcut can be outsourcing your it um you know whatever it being, you know, like one person can fix it all from a computer. And the reality is that that doesn't always work. So I think there needs to be a contrast going forward that companies need to actually one grasp the fact is that technology is an important thing, but also still pay for it and know that you can't have a quick solution that can come from India or Pakistan or something like that is in the sense of it um, assistance and help. Um, you're going to see that, you know, too many times when this happened, like, People were having way too long of wait calls trying to get to India. And then all of a sudden, India's whole system went on lockdown and no one could even answer the phone if you wanted to. So, like, it definitely exposed a risk in companies. But um, to the point that I think we're all kind of learning and growing after all of this. And I think at the end of the day, we will have more people working from home. We'll have more kind of investment in technology. I, I love it. Like, if you read the articles currently coming out of, like, the amount of innovation that's going to come out of this at the end of the day out of Silicon Valley and whatnot from one people having time on their hands and two like the amount of development and need that's being kind of surfaced um, that hadn't been there before is going to be quite, uh, quite impressive. And I think this, this current standing of working from home and kind of inter interconnecting uh, individuals from, you know, not in the sense of a centralized office space is going to really grow and continue. Fucking A. Fucking A. Thanks, boys. Fun talking to you. Let's do this again. Thank you. This place is dead anyway, man.